the Water Values Podcast, Session 81. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. We're going to uh, do a little different format today, and you'll notice uh, because we're recording so close to the release date that uh, we're, we're kind of skipping the traditional intro. Today's guest is fantastic, and I refer to one of his books quite frequently on the show. But before we get to the interview, just a friendly reminder to please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory on which you listen to the show. Thank you for your efforts. They're greatly appreciated. Well, today's guest is the one and only Charles Fishman, author of The Big Thirst, among other books and articles. Uh, from my vantage point, The Big Thirst was out in front of all the other water books published in the last couple of years, both from a timing standpoint and from a content standpoint. Essentially, Charles saw water issues before a lot of people saw them, and he wrote about them in a very accessible manner. He's a frequent tweeter on water issues, frequent author, and I couldn't be more pleased to have him on here with us now. So, Charles, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time, and thanks for coming on. David, thanks for having me. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine a better place to sit and talk about water as we approach World Water Day. Exactly. And so, Charles, can you tell us a little about your background and how, how did you come to get interested in water? If you had told me 10 years ago that I would write a book about water, I, I, I would have laughed. I have, in fact, no more experience thinking about or um, worrying about or understanding water than anybody else. I did grow up in Miami, Florida. So I, I grew up surrounded by water. Uh, my, my parents used to pay us, they had four children, to swim laps in the backyard swimming pool, a penny a lap. The most brilliant parenting strategy, which we pass on here in the Water Values podcast, not the parenting podcast, <laughs> because it cost them almost nothing. We were thrilled to make money. And when all was said and done, we were so tired, we couldn't possibly cause any trouble. Uh, and I learned to sail in Miami. Uh, I never thought about um, where my water came from then or, or really in most of the rest of the places I, I lived. I, I love canoeing and, and doing things on the water. I got started in the world of water in a, in a kind of funny way, uh, a story I tell with some regularity. We, we used to um, live in Philly, and we would drive to Miami to... Uh, visit. We drive. We we go see my parents every every um, uh, Christmas, and uh, we used to drive. We about six years ago we drove from Philly to Miami, wheeled into the hotel we were staying in, and we were all kind of wiped out. It's it's a long drive. I don't think we did it in one shot. But we checked into a hotel room, and there was a bottle of Fiji water in the hotel room, and uh, none of us had ever seen Fiji water before. And my wife really believes that the bottled water is in the hotel room for her drinking pleasure. <laughs> and so almost before the, uh, the door had swung shut on us, she had the little tag off the neck of the bottle. The tag said, this bottle will cost you $7 if you drink it. And she had consumed half the bottle of water. And I said, honey, do you think the water in that bottle really comes from Fiji? And by the way, where exactly is Fiji anyway? Uh, and so I, I actually threw the empty Fiji water bottle in my suitcase and took it home. Uh, I was worried I would forget about Fiji water. Little, little did I know there was no chance of forgetting about it. And um, when I got back to my desk, I discovered that 53% of the people in Fiji at that moment did not have clean, safe drinking water. And 
And in fact, the water in the Fiji water bottles comes from Fiji, which is truly astonishing. In, in, when, I, when I talk to, to school groups or community groups or, or at universities, I always ask people before I say that the water comes from Fiji, how many people think the water in the bottle is from Fiji and how many people think it's just the name of the water. I've never had more than 10 or 15% of the people in the room think the water comes from Fiji, which is kind of astonishing because in fact, the water really does come from Fiji. And so you can, you can walk into a convenience store or a grocery store anywhere in America. Walmart sells Fiji water, Safeway, Giant, Vons, uh, CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, they all sell it. We have easier access to clean, safe drinking water from Fiji than the people in Fiji do. And that's kind of amazing. That's a, a brilliant innovation of the global economy and an incredible failure of the global economy at once. And, and so I, I decided to write a story about bottled water, which was frankly a little bit of a hard sell um, at the magazine that I typically write for, Fast Company, because bottled water had been around for so long, what, what new was there to say? but I, I, I did the kind of reporting that, that, that brought bottled water to life. I went to Fiji, I visited the Fiji water bottling plant in Fiji. I went to San Pellegrino and visited the San Pellegrino water bottling plant and I, and I went to Poland Spring, Maine and visited the Poland Spring plant. Um, those are the kind of sacrifices that you want your, your intrepid reporters to be willing to make. Uh, some people go to Syria, I went to San Pellegrino. And, and, um, you know, bottled water is one of those crazy products. It's a huge indulgence. It's totally ridiculous. Um, it's incredibly popular. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's a wonderful subject for journalism. It's easy to make fun of. Um, when, you're, when you're thirsty and you want a bottle of water, you're glad it's there. But, it, but, but when I was growing up, there literally was no bottled water in the, in the supermarket. There was only... Um, there were water fountains everywhere, and you actually there were you used water fountains enough that you actually understood which were the water fountains that had appealing tasting water and which were the water fountains that weren't that well maintained and had unappealing tasting water. Uh, and uh, so the reaction to that story about bottled water was just extraordinary, and that is how I ended up stepping into the world of water and writing the Big Thirst. Now, as you know. The Big Thirst is whatever, 400 pages, and it only has eight or 10 pages about bottled water. The, the, the book took me on this incredible journey um, to Las Vegas. I spent a month in, in Las Vegas. I spent a month in Australia. I spent a month in India trying to understand water problems. And from my perspective, much more important, trying to understand water solutions. What does it look like when people grab hold of their water problems and solve them what motivates them? Why do they do it? And what are the results? And what does it take to get from problem to, you know, having a functioning water system, whether that's wastewater, whether it's irrigation, whether it's a big community, you know, with, a, with an integrated system, how does that work? And so that's, that's, that was really my mission in the book was, was twofold. First, in fact, was to re restore a little bit of a sense of wonder about water. It's not just that we take water for granted in our daily lives. Water is the most amazing substance in the world. The continents only move because there's water hundreds of miles deep infused into the rock that the continents rest on. You know, every 
cell in every living thing that we know about contains water and, and requires water. So water moves the continents and it also enables every form of life. And so some of the book is sort of an effort to sort of say, you, you don't know these, these uh, three atoms and how they come together, but let me, let me introduce it to you. And the other part was, of course, in some ways to sound an alarm and offer the solution at the same time, to say water problems are coming. When they come, this is what it looks like when you tackle them. Sure. And, and you kind of alluded to it uh, earlier when you indicated that World Water Day is right around the corner. World Water Day, of course, is March 22nd. Um, and we specifically are recording this uh, so that we could release it as close to World Water Day as possible, at least on my regular recording schedule. Now, uh, I, I found it very interesting, you, your kind of journey uh, to the water world uh, started with, with this bottle of Fiji water and, uh, and finding out that on Fiji, you know, about half the people don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. And who would have thought that in 21st century America that that, that issue is rearing its head with, our, with the infrastructure problems? You can look at Flint. You can look at Sebring, Ohio. Uh, there's been all kinds of these stories cropping up ever since the, the Flint issue occurred. Um, and, and really when the, the Flint issue was in its infancy – the White House convened a conference back in, you know, in December 2015, where they they announced that they were going to have some major initiative for water in the budget. So, you know, it's been kind of turned this moonshot for water, and that's what we wanted to to kind of address today. So, Charles, could you could you place the the uh, the, the presence of a lot, essentially, I'll call it a line item for water in the federal budget. Where does that where does that stand in your mind in terms of the context of our of our water problems? So, it turns out that what kind of what happened was the 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 White House team that helped handle the climate uh, negotiations in Paris returned from Paris. Um, very energized and with a sense of accomplishment and also momentum, like, you know, uh, we, we've tackled an important element of climate change. Maybe we have bent the curve of the future in the, in the right direction. And w what they said to us in the water world, I, I'm not really a member of the water world like you are, but I'm an ex officio member. That's how I think of myself. <laughs> um, uh, is in every room at the Paris climate talks, the, the talk was really about water because for most people, the consequences of climate change manifest themselves in some kind of water related problem. Too much water, flooding, um, drought, uh, uh, precipitation that used to fall as snow and provide nice steady um, uh, water, a, wa a nice steady water supply throughout the year that now falls as rain and disappears and runs down the, the rivers, um, uh, shifting ability to raise crops, you know, the same annual precipitation, but precipitation that falls at different times or precipitation that falls um, literally physically in different places in a region than your reservoirs are set up or your or your collection system is set up. And so they came back, I think, thinking about what could we do about water? What could we do to help water? 
And as soon as they started asking questions, I think they discovered that in the United States, we have this odd situation where for most people, and, and, and what's happened in Flint, we could talk about for a few minutes. Flint, of course, was preceded by what happened in Toledo, Ohio, where they had to close uh, down the water system because of pollution from agricultural runoff for a couple days, which was preceded by Charleston, West Virginia, where the, the, the contamination from literally just a few gallons of a very toxic chemical turned off the water supply of a whole city for many, many days. Um, what they found was that we, in fact, have a brilliant water system in the United States. Um, the system is brilliant for cities. It's pretty brilliant for farmers. We have overall incredibly abundant, even luxurious water resources. It's one of the reasons, it's one of the natural resources that helps the U.S. economy flourish almost thoughtlessly. The system have been put in place in such a way that, that only the people who worry about them worry about them. And, um, and at the same time, alongside this, this brilliant system, it's a very neglected system. The uh, American Society of Civil Engineers, which, is, which are the people who design things like bridges, roads, airports, and, and also uh, water systems, rate the U.S. water system overall D minus. That's the condition it's in. D minus. If your kid's teeth were rated D minus by the dentist, you know, if your posture were rated D minus, if your own dental care were rated D minus, you would jump on it and do something about it. So we have a brilliant system that has been neglected. And they thought, what could we do to, we have one more year in office. We're kind of jazzed about climate. If we tackle water problems, that will give the U.S. some cushion against whatever the climate impacts are gonna be in this country. But there is no, there's no master plan for water in the United States. There are lots of really smart, really engaged people. There are 20 different um, departments inside the federal government that have something to do with water. There's water in Interior, there's water in EPA, there's water at the US Geological Survey, there's water at the Department of Housing, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Defense does a huge amount of stuff with water on and on. Army Corps of Engineers, NOAA, the National Weather Service, Fish and Wildlife, Department of Energy, all doing things with water. But there's not really any, the Department of Energy and, and NOAA and the Department of Defense don't actually talk to each other about their water projects. So there's a lot going on, not very well coordinated, not really very well aimed, and then there's, a kind of world of water in the real world outside the government, outside the federal government, that is kind of chugging along, but has not experienced the revolution that so much of the rest of society, you might even say all the rest of society, has experienced. And so I think in literally the space of a month, a small group of people um, in the Obama administration thought, we could have a real impact on water, but we don't know what that impact would be. So they, 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 they my sense is that they had a whole series of conversations. Um, you know, Peter Gleek, for instance, who's a legendary water scientist out in California, is one of the people. David Sedlak, who's a professor at Berkeley, who uh, just wrote himself a book called Water 4.0. People like that, um, the general manager 
uh, of the DC water system uh, who's, who's right at hand, uh, who's a legendary uh, uh, guy uh, and, and good at talking about water. And they, so they tapped dozens of people to get ideas, to get direction. They held this meeting December 15th in the old executive office building of about um, 50 of those people. And I think the point of the meeting was to galvanize that group and to say to them, we really are serious about doing something, but we don't quite know what it is. At that meeting, they announced two things. They announced that there would be a water innovation budget for the country for the first time. And they announced that there would be a water summit. They were, they were taking the round table up one step to summit, uh, a White House water summit, and that will be on World Water Day. So if, this, if you're listening to this podcast on March 15th, on March 22nd uh, is the White House Water Summit. The, the water innovation budget was released um, a couple days before the actual budget. It's, it's not a line item, David. It's actually two, it's two full pages in the, <laughs> in the federal budget, which is 2,000 pages. So you'd have to look for it. You wouldn't just stumble on it, I don't think. But there's never been two pages in the federal budget devoted to thinking exclusively about water and how to galvanize water issues. Um, and then the White House has been a little vague about what's going to happen at the water summit, but they're clearly going to um, multiply the number of people they bring in dramatically. They've asked companies to make water-saving commitments, and they've set up a website so that companies and organizations can, you know, like a university or something, can say, here's what we're going to do to change the game with water. So, uh, so they haven't actually quite said how they're going to tackle everything, but they have made it clear that in literally in the space of two or three months, they are bringing water issues into focus at a level they never have received this kind of attention before. There's no, you know, there's no national water, there's no secretary of water in the United States. There's no sort of national coordinating office for water. There's no, you know, office of the, you know, water counselor to the president, nothing like that. And so, this is this is a really it's the beginnings of a really interesting effort and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, I, I agree and I I think the significance of water being in the budget as its own item for the first time I think is uh, that cannot be overstated. Now some of the things that have been leaked or that are that are in there um, better materials for water pipes. Uh, essentially that's that's aiming at non-revenue water essentially trying to uh, make sure our pipes don't leak all this water that we spent all this money uh, preparing for drinkability, uh, making sure it doesn't leak. We Better sensors to detect leaks, again, a non-revenue water issue. More water-efficient household appliances uh, and more cost-effective desalination technologies. Uh, so in in all the work you've obviously done on this, because you've you've looked into this uh, pretty pretty heavily, what... What's the reaction to those items in the budget? And do you, is there is there a sense that we're we're targeting the right areas for this for this proposed financing from the federal government? I would say 
that 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 people in the world of water are reluctant to criticize any any aspect of this initiative for fear of seeing seeming curmudgeonly or or ungracious um, with somebody finally paying attention. But the quick answer to your question is, you know, no, not not everybody thinks. I mean, I've I. I've got a piece that I hope will come out in the New York Times just in advance of this uh, summit. And I went around and, I, and I've talked to two dozen people. Uh, you and I had an email exchange about it and, I, and I've actually done long interviews with, with well more than 20 people um, asking that question. What do you all think the federal government could do that would change the game? And, and, and it really depends, are you a university researcher? Are you somebody who helps a state legislature make policy? Are you a, a cutting edge, high tech entrepreneur focused on, on reducing the amount of energy and the cost of desal? You know, if you, if you come at it from membranes, then you want better water purification membranes. And if you come at it from uh, uh, managing groundwater, then you want a state legislature that requires groundwater users to at the very least report their groundwater. And those things are completely different and it's not even clear what the right federal role would be in, in either of those. You, you, David, have focused often, I mean, the, the whole point of having a podcast, which, which requires an enormous amount of effort, um, on, on just sort of lighting people up, on, on engaging people on water, on leaving them with a little sense of how to manage water issues so when those issues come up in their own uh, lives and their own communities, they have some basis to make decisions. I, the piece that I've written, uh, here's the argument I've made. There's one thing we could do that would change the game completely in all arenas in water. And, 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 and I'll take a minute and make that argument. And that thing is to fix water data, to fix water information. You know, in the United States, we measure the unemployment rate once a month, and it's reported typically the first Friday of the month for the month just ended. Measuring the unemployment rate in a country the scale and complexity of the United States requires interviewing 60,000 families a month. The federal government interviews 60,000 families a month about what's happening with work in their lives and their families every month. And the results are then reported five or six days after the month ends. That's an incredible amount of effort. Walmart uh, has such an incredible data system that at the conclusion of any hour of the day, between 12 and 1 p.m., at 1.05 p.m. in the afternoon, you can look up the sales for laundry detergent across the nation from the previous hour you can slice it by powdered or liquid, by brand, by region, do the New Englanders and the, and the Southerners buy different kinds of laundry detergent? Does one side prefer powdered or liquid? And you can do it for every single product that Walmart sells. In the world of water, we do an, a, an attempt, we, we attempt to do an authoritative measurement of the, of the use of water by the entire nation every five years. And it's just for the one year every five years. And we report the water data four years late. So the most recent comprehensive survey of water use in the United States was for 2010. And it was released in November 2014. So the most comprehensive water data we've got about the country 
comes from the year before the California drought started. Well, that's just ridiculous. The federal government actually has a department called the Energy Information, uh, the Energy Information Administration, EIA.gov. There's this sort of perfect model for what I would like water to be. They measure energy use in real time in the United States, in every form, in every location, for every purpose. Who makes it, what it costs, how it's delivered, what people use it for, and, and the, the information is produced hourly, weekly, monthly. <laughs> no one has to wait seven years to get uh, information about the energy use, and that wouldn't be useful. And so I think the most important thing the federal government could do to start would be to say, we're gonna figure out how the country uses water, and we're gonna create a group inside USGS. There is a group that does this. They work really hard. There's just only about 20 of them. Um, and and we're gonna produce good water data every month about the most important sources of water and uses of water in the country. And we're gonna create a group of experts who then look back after the first year and the first three years and say, here's a different kind of water data we need to explain what's going on. And that's a way of providing people with the information they need to make good decisions. And so my, my and that I, I connect that up to awareness, to education. You can't talk to people about something that you don't even understand yourself. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. And, you know, when, when you're talking about fixing data, um, you know, so many of, we have over 50,000 water utilities out there. Uh, and a lot of these, a lot of the 50,000 are just small systems that simply don't, they don't have the wherewithal, or at least... I think they could, but a lot of them just aren't recording that. I th and it, the compilation of that data, I think, is just going to be a monumental task. How do you, how do you envision fixing uh, the the data problem that we have with our water water utilities? I mean, is this? Are you are you? Are, well, I have I have a fantasy. Here's my fantasy. <laughs> every water bill, every monthly water bill in the United States gets a dime added to it each month. That comes to $1.20 a year added to your water bill. The typical water bill is $35 a month. So the, the typical water bill is $420 a year. I'm talking about adding $1.20. If you add 10 cents a month to every municipal water bill, you create a, a pot of $100 million a year. There's a, 100 million families uh, in the United States. The whole Energy Information Administration, the budget of that organization after 40 years is $120 million. They employ 600 people. Now, we don't, we don't need $120 million a year to measure water at the moment, and we don't need 600 people. But we sure could use $20 million a year and 200 people. And then you could say to states, we wanna know you know, what the use of water by farm farms and, ag and the agricultural sector is in your state. Let's figure out how to do that with you. Then you could create a system. All those 55,000 water utilities are required to report certain things to the federal government. And there's a data system for taking those reports. But the only things they're required to report have to do with the quality of the water. That system could be instantly adapted 
it would require a little bit of legislation, but it could be instantly adapted to require them to report how much water they deliver as well and who they're delivering it to and what it's used for. And then after you, I mean, we only do this once every five years. So the system's a little kludgy. I mean, just think about measuring something so important only in years divisible by five. That's like, it's, it's like it's 1916 instead of 2016. And then after a year or two, you look around and say, well, we don't really have good groundwater measures, but these, these really uh, innovative people um, at JPL in California are using satellites and gravity to measure groundwater changes. What if we strengthened those sensors and put them in airplanes and flew the airplanes across the most important aquifers of the United States? Or wait a minute, what if we equipped commercial aircraft with those groundwater gravity sensors. And we got a picture of the groundwater in the United States 20,000 times a day as airplanes flew over it. And this new water data group with this dedicated source of funding which would not pinch anybody in the country set up a system for gathering that data and sorting it. So I think water is ready for the kind of revolution that has swept through real estate and advertising and the news media and medicine. You know, you, you, you can't do a CAT scan without high-speed, high-powered computers because the amount of data that a CAT scanner pours out needs to be processed. And the truth is people shrug and say, well, I don't know, how would you get data about an aquifer? You'd have to drill wells and send somebody out to monitor them. And, Yes, if it were 1962, you'd have to drill wells and send somebody out to monitor them, but probably we don't need to do it that way. The problem is we don't have anybody thinking about it. And so what I'm imagining is that you create a group of people, not a huge bureaucracy, a group of nimble, excited data nerds and water nerds who unpack this world for us, and that that information in turn unleashes incredible innovation. My, my favorite example is if somebody had told you 10 years ago that we would have the best traffic data in our lives because we all carry telephones and that the information would be on our telephones, you probably would have laughed. But in fact, on an Android phone, on an iPhone, you call up the, the Google map or the Apple map, there's real-time traffic data right there. Often the map will tell you how to get around the backup. It will frequently tell you whether the backup is the result of an accident or, a, or, or a construction or just routine congestion. And that data comes from people stuck in traffic or moving smoothly along the roads with their phones. The phones are reporting the speed with which the people on the roads are moving. And then that data is piped back to you on your phone before you get on the road. So that no one thought, let's, let's give everybody a smartphone so we can have better traffic data. And so I think once you actually supply the world, water utility managers, stormwater managers, farmers, agriculture extension agents, people who manage watersheds, people who manage aquifers, entrepreneurs, tech people, once you give them this incredible flood of near real-time data, you will unleash this incredible wave of innovation and also you'll see ways to use water more smartly, to use less water, to take the water you've got and be more productive with it. You, you can't, man, if we only measured the unemployment rate twice a year, 
we would do a really poor job of managing the economy. We'd be making bad decisions. And the idea that with water data that's five years old at its newest and takes four years to provide, that we are somehow have the information we need to make smart decisions is just silly in the modern world. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think th your vision is fascinating. And if we could get there, it would be to see what we could do with that data would be incredible. Um, one, one thing that has, has keeps springing into my mind is, is there's a guy named Trevor Hill. He's been a guest on the podcast. He uh, owns Fathom uh, and he owns some, he's part of an ownership group that owns utilities in Arizona. But I, I've seen him at conferences and he'll say, you know, water is heavy. Uh, and one of the big issues with water being heavy is, you know, you can't transport it long distances. You know, it's not like electricity that you can generate in one state and it'll, it'll show up somewhere else. Um, and I think that also is an issue that we need to solve because that, that requires that our, our water issues are local in nature. I mean, we can, we can, you know, it's kind of this, uh, think globally, act locally kind of ethos, um, and have, do you, I, I was just kind of curious, do you have, have you thought about that particular issue about, you know, kind of the water is heavy problem? Yeah. Well, I've talked to Trevor Hill. I talked to him. I met him in the course. In fact, I met him, quote unquote, met him by telephone in the course of doing the reporting to ask the question that the, that the White House folks are trying to ask, what should the federal government do? And I had, I think I talked to him literally for 90 minutes. It was, it was a, uh, it was, it was definitely a convergence of water geeks on the telephone um, and a, a fascinating guy. And he in fact is using, you know, the most advanced data processing techniques to ask really simple questions for water utilities about their customers, about their leak rates and how to fix those things. Um, Yes, water. Of course, water is heavy, and and I'm 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 one of those people who says two things about water problems. All water problems are local. In fact, excuse me, they're happening right where they're happening, and that that's in fact good news. You don't need to look to somebody in the state capital or or in Washington or in London to fix your water problem. Your water problem is right in your community, and you can fix it. And and the second thing I typically say is, and that I really believe, is that almost every water problem in the world has already been solved. The White House really wants to cut the cost of desal by 75%, and they think that would be a huge game changer in lots of communities in the U.S. and around the world, and they're right. And, and maybe that when you talk about a moonshot for water, if you could actually cut the cost of desal by 75% and, and leave it there consistently, um, that would be great. And, and lots of coastal communities would benefit. Lots of agricultural communities that have uh, aquifers that either because of farming practices or because of natural deposits are saline, could tap those aquifers, clean the water inexpensively and, and use it. The fact that water is heavy hasn't slowed us down, of course. There are vast water projects. Water is heavy hasn't stopped California from moving water, you know, literally from one end of the continent to the other in order to supply farms. I think um, when, when, um, when you talk about water being heavy, partly what you mean is that 
if Atlanta has a water problem, Nashville can't help solve it. And if Las Vegas has a water problem, the truth is, even though Chicago is flush with water, it can't help Las Vegas. And that's true. But when you say water problems are local, when you say it, when I say it, when we, when we agree that water problems are local, you have to draw the circle pretty widely in terms of the word local, because often what you mean by local is a watershed. And in the West, the Colorado River is in some ways a single watershed crossing whatever it is, 11 states or 13 states. Um, and so in your immediate community with your water utility and your stormwater folks and your wastewater folks, that yes, that is a very local situation, but what ha where you get the water and what happens to the water when you're done with it uh, often takes place in a, in a larger context. And so I, I'm not as concerned about water being heavy as Trevor as Trevor is, because I don't think anybody's really suggesting. You know, pe the people in the Great Lakes are always saying, you know, Las Vegas and Phoenix are going to take Great Lakes water. Well, they're not. <laughs> no one's actually thinking about that. And um, e even when Las Vegas thought about building its own desal plant either in Mexico or California on the Pacific Ocean and piping the water back to Las Vegas, people were just in an uproar about the ridiculous energy costs of bringing water to Las Vegas uh, uh, from the Pacific Coast. And so I think people are very sensitive to the transport costs. And so I, I think it's really important that water problems are local. And to me, that should be energizing. That means that notwithstanding the, the focus that the White House can bring, you need to tackle your water problems in your own community. And the truth is, that all of the failures of Flint, Michigan, start not in Washington, but in Flint with the officials appointed to oversee the water system, and then the city in, in its financial receivership, and then the people at the state capitol in Lansing appointed to oversee those people. And, and that is all a pretty local event. Now the federal, now, you know, things have gotten so damaged and the community has literally been poisoned, and now we need the resources of the federal government to help out. But if somebody had taken a step back in the beginning and said, what's going on here? This isn't right. Uh, the resources were mostly at hand to tackle the problem right there. Flint, Flint's economic situation notwithstanding, certainly the state of Michigan had the resources necessary to tackle that problem. And so for me, when, when, when people say water problems are local, what I hope that means to people is you who are listening to us talk about this, whatever problems your community is having, that's where the solution is, right there. If farmers in California are pumping too hard and using too much water, sure, you could wait for somebody from Washington to come try and fix that problem. Or you could say, hey, it's our water, it's our land, it's our subsidence, it's our future, it's our aquifer. We have the tools we need to tackle this problem. And so that's what that means to me. Terrific. You know, Charles, it is always fantastic to hear your perspective on things. Uh, really appreciate you taking some time to, to chat with us today. Is there anything we haven't gotten to today that you'd like to say before we uh, say goodbye? 
you know i hope everybody no matter when they're listening to this will watch for what the white house does on march twenty second it's not quite clear what they're going to what they're going to unleash and it's not even clear yet uh, you and i are talking the week before the the march fifteenth podcast so the, the invitations to the white house summit haven't actually gone out yet uh... so for instance i don't know i don't know whether i'm going to be invited or not <laughs> some some things i've written they like some things i've written they definitely don't like um, but but pay attention on March 23rd after the White House summit, and let's see what uh, what direction the the federal government is aiming. It's it doesn't have huge resources. This isn't going to be a department a Department of Defense style 10 billion dollar you know 20 year water initiative. But no president, literally since Lyndon Johnson. No president has paid real attention to water issues. And so it, it will be fun and also important to see what the White House decides to focus on and use that as a lever in your own communities to bring a little extra oomph and a little extra innovation to what you're trying to get done. Terrific. Well, Charles, for those who want to find out more about you and about the Big Thirst and, and the other things you're working on, where can they go to find that information? <laughs> <laughs> they could just Google Charles Fishman and Water. <laughs> I mean, I have the, the book has a website, uh, www.thebigthirst.com. But to be honest, it's just the book and then the uh, uh, easy to use version of the footnotes up online. So you can click the links rather than type them in. Um, and, you know, I'm, I if you just Google my name in water, you know, plenty, plenty of stuff comes up, including the two pieces that I've already written for Fast Company magazine about what the White House is up to and what might be coming next. Fantastic. Well, Charles, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on. David, it's a pleasure. I love the Water Values podcast. Oh, thanks, Charles. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.